Let's pray again together for God's help today. Father, how thankful we are that you have the words of life. And thank you that you have not hidden them from us. You have extended a wide open invitation for all to come to you. Lord Jesus, you said it in many ways and in many different settings. And some of your most famous words are, Come to me, all you that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And we come to you this day for rest, for light, for life, for wisdom and understanding. We come to you for the forgiveness of our sins. We come to you for the assurance of pardon. We come to you for peace. There are all kinds of needs represented here at this moment. And oh God, how we pray that by the personal ministry of your Holy Spirit to us, as we are, where we are, that you would address each of those needs and lead us into a path of understanding, of faith, where our hearts would know comfort, our hearts would know the relief of the forgiveness of your sins, where our hearts would know the peace that comes from on high. And I pray that you would not leave us alone. Please don't leave us to our own devices. Please don't leave us to our wrong understanding of who you are and what you have done. And please, Lord God, do not leave us in our sin. And we ask that this would be a day where there is great joy because we have found the freedom that is in Christ. Now, Holy Spirit, will you illuminate our minds again that we may understand your word and will you awaken our souls that we may believe all that you reveal to us and would you strengthen our wills that we may obey. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Any of you see this picture tweeted out in the last couple of weeks? It's been reproduced in a couple of news, news articles, and a little article appeared uh, in the last two weeks, and I saw it this past week that records on April 15th, flight attendants discovered rice on an aisle floor of their airplane. Hoping to identify the person responsible for the spilled rice, one of the flight attendants purportedly confronted the plane's passengers about the mess. And one of those passengers who was caught in the middle of this began to snap some photographs and, and tweet it out. Jennifer Shopper is her name, a passenger on the, on the flight, and her first tweet was this, if you can read that, because my travels seem to involve unintentional comedy, just boarded the plane and somebody spilled food, the flight attendant screamed, who spilled rice and is walking up and down the aisles? They are refusing to leave the gate until someone cleans the rice. Next tweet, update, rice is getting clean, but she is mad. She has let us all know that we were not raised right, and she is disappointed in all of us. Hashtag RiceGate. Well, it's that last little line that caught my attention. You know, I mean, that, that's just another way of saying shame on you. Now, I'll confess there's something in me that's like, yeah, whoever spilled it should have cleaned it up. Like, just man up or woman up and then clean it up. It, it is kind of ridiculous. But I also think, wow, you know, to just like publicly announce, you people, not just the guilty party, but you people were not raised right, and I'm disappointed in all of you. That, that's just the age-old tactic of shaming, isn't it? 
Our culture's really good at that today. Parents do it, teachers sometimes do it, politicians do it, all kinds of authority figures, even religious leaders do it. Well, that's because it's a powerful tool. I'm not saying it's a good tool necessarily, and certainly not as it is always used, but you know, when somebody steps into your world and says, shame on you, that is going to have an impact. I suspect we all have shame stories that we could tell from the accidental self-shaming things that we have done in a moment of stupidity, um, embarrassing ourselves, like the time I was a very young and new pastor making a hospital visit to a family whose adult daughter was dying. It was a critical moment, and I realized halfway into my conversation and prayer time that I was with a different family. I, to this day, do not know who they were, and they do not know who I am, and like this wave of fear and shame began to wash over my soul, and I prayed with all generic sincerity and excused myself and and didn't actually even visit the family I was there to visit. I was so humiliated. there's There's a shaming story for you. There are also those shame stories where we were in a position where somebody called us out and it impacted us so deeply that we never really got over it. And those are ugly and wounding and life-altering. Shame has been a part of every culture since Adam and Eve first sinned and in their shame ran away from God and tried to hide. There's some definitions uh, of shame that I have found to be helpful, but one in particular Shame refers to a person's internal experience of disgrace. An internal experience of disgrace. There's something external that probably was the catalyst, but the effect is there's an internal experience of disgrace. Fearing that others will see how she has dishonored herself. Often resulting in a preventative attitude that one must remain out of sight in order to avoid being disgraced. No one wants to be at the center of the kind of finger-pointing that you see illustrated on the screen. Broadly speaking, there are two kinds of shame we experience. One would be shame for our sins and failures, and the other would be that shame we experience and often carry because somebody else has sinned against us. Maybe in time we'll be able to address that second category. But you know, God God has actually designed his shame to get us moving in his direction. And we forget that sometimes. Our culture doesn't use shaming techniques to try to move people closer in relationship. Our culture uses shame to drive people out, to move them away, to silence their voices, to belittle their standing. And so we as a human race have developed all kinds of strategies for dealing with shame. The very first one, as I mentioned just a moment ago, Adam and Eve illustrated it for us, and and we continue to do what our first parents did. It's just to run. It's to find a a means of escape, to put distance between ourselves and, and the shame or the people who know about our disgrace or who remind us of our disgrace. And sometimes if physical distance is enough, then we lose ourselves in food or entertainment or social media or work or exercise. Or sometimes we find a a greater cause than we can be a part of. Sometimes even service to God 
is nothing more than a means of escape from shame. Sometimes we rework the story. That is, we come up with a different storyline than what reality is because it softens the pain of the shame we have in our hearts. And sometimes we'll say with reference to our own sin, well, I didn't really mean to say that. That's one way you rework the story. Or you might say, I didn't intend to hurt you so deeply. With reference to a parent's sin, sometimes we say things like this, well, I know my mom meant well. And she did the best she could. You're rewriting the narrative. Those things might be true, but it doesn't actually diminish the sin that you have borne in your heart. Or you may say, Dad never said it, but I know he loved me. You feel a sense of shame at the broken relationship that you experience. One author writes, we create a false Eden to shield ourselves from more harm. There's a third strategy and that is we sometimes remake our image and we try to reshape the perception others have of us, especially if we feel like their perception is one of disgrace or shame. But this inevitably leads to more anxiety and perfectionism or anger or depression, sometimes even suicide as a result of that. The shame is too much. But you know, there's another remedy that the Lord himself offers to us. And it's in our text today. I want you to look at Luke 7. Luke is the third of four New Testament Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. And in chapter 7, there's a quite remarkable story that at the center of it, though the term doesn't appear in this text, it, it really is at the center of what's going on because shame was an enormous part of Jewish culture. And so I want you to follow along as I read Luke 7, verse beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Perfume would probably be even more precise. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair, the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, 
Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's a beautiful story. And there's powerful truth in this and and truth that will alter your life if you will allow this same Lord who is speaking in the middle of this dinner party to speak to your heart this morning. I want you to notice it's, it's a diverse gathering. There are three characters in particular who emerge here, though the crowd is bigger than just these three, but I want you to think in terms of, of this religious host. He's called a Pharisee, but I want to unpack that and make note of the fact that Pharisee is just a term that means a separated one. The Pharisees were the most influential of the three major Jewish sects at, uh, in Israel at that time, the other two being the Sadducees and the Essenes. And the Pharisees prided themselves on separating from all things that were considered to be unholy and unclean, whether that be of a ceremonial nature, of a traditional nature, or a spiritual nature. And so the term Pharisee has to do with separating from all that is uh, unholy. One author writes, the formal religion of the Pharisees, though, had no real answer to the problem of sin and could only respond with disapproval and condemnation or shame. And if you think about it, if the center of your religion is simply a list of don't do these things because you'll be defiled and make sure you're doing all these things to prove to everybody, including God, that you're holy, well, of course, it's going to morph into a system that's really ugly and frustrated and angry where condemnation and disapproval just, just, just flow out of the heart and out of the mouth. So disapproval and condemnation are powerful cultural forces of shame. And this is at the heart even of our own culture. It really is at the heart of virtue signaling. When we pull that kind of stunt, what are we trying to say to everybody else around us? I'm good, or I'm even better than you, and you should be good like me. That's what's at the epicenter of cancel culture. You get enough people together who decide they don't like the way a person acts, thinks, talks, communicates, lives his or her life, and so they band together to shame that person into oblivion. It's just a modern-day form of Pharisaism. And so whatever the culture deems to be unholy, we go after aggressively to remove it from our lives. And whatever the group or the present culture believes is now the new form of righteousness, well, that's what we champion and applaud and celebrate amongst ourselves. It's just Pharisaism. Do what we say or we will humiliate you in front of the world. And so a lot of us live in fear of all that, don't we? It's not, cancel culture is not new. Sadly, though, there's no remedy for shame in systems like that. There really isn't. You either get on board with whatever the power brokers in that culture demand, or you, you die in some form. 
but there's no remedy for shame. Well, that brings us to the second guest, or, or the second character, the gracious guest. And we'll say more about Jesus in a moment, but notice the text again. He went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Uh, as a sidebar, reclining at the table is an indication that this was a formal banquet. I mean, this is a big deal. The Pharisee was probably pretty wealthy, had gone to great lengths to have uh, a table laden with all kinds of rich food and beverage, and Jesus is there to enjoy it. But then there's another character who shows up, and that's the intruding sinner. Look at verse 37 with me again. Mark, in writing this story, inserts that little phrase, behold. Now, I've been seeing lots of social media posts about proms and senior banquets, and some of you have children who've participated in that in this spring, and others of you will. And, and typically, your teen will come home from one of those great events, and generally, there's a story to tell of some kind, whether for good or for bad. But I dare say, none of you moms and dads have had your teen burst into the house at the end of a, a really amazing evening and say, Mom, Dad, behold! So, no, they would say it in terms of something like this, maybe. Get this, or you won't believe. Well, that's the force of this word, behold. Mark doesn't use it in every single story that he tells. He really is trying to like, get our attention and say, hey, listen up, get this. Behold, and what is it? A woman of the city who was a sinner. Oh, and that stands in really stark contrast to the Pharisee the holy one, the separated one, right? The sinner shows up. Now that term is used in reference to people who do in fact disobey God's divine commands, who neglect duties that he has said you should do this or do things that he has said don't do these things. And Luke uses this term 10 times in his gospel. He uses it in several different stories and beautifully, another sidebar, it's often in reference to the fact that Jesus himself is keeping the company of sinners. Now, that scandalizes people like the Pharisee. In this particular story, Mark uses it three times. First here in verse 37, where he, as the storyteller, the gospel writer, says, yep, this woman is a sinner. The second time is in verse 39, where Simon, in his secret thoughts, uh, and we'll get to that in just a moment, acknowledges this is a woman with a reputation for her sin. And then verse 47, Jesus himself acknowledges it that she's guilty of many sins. So there can be no doubt that this is a woman who has lived a sinful life and actually has a reputation for that sinfulness. Some even suspect it may be a euphemism for prostitution. Now, the text doesn't tell us that, but what is crystal clear is that she has lived a life up to a certain point that is characterized by rebellion toward God and violation of his law. You know, the only difference between this woman and the rest of us in this room is that it's just put out there in a public place. There's nobody who's ever breathed Earth's air who existed outside of this term sinner. Look at the intrusion. As Mark goes on, he says, when she learned that he was reclining at table at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment, perfume, as I noted a moment ago, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And that term wet uh, is used in reference to rain showers. Like, it, it's, it's an ugly cry, if, if you want to think of it that way. I mean, tears are pouring down 
wetting his feet. And then Mark continues, and she wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with that perfume. Now here's my question. How could a woman with this reputation be so bold as to walk into a dinner party where she was not on the guest list, a dinner party hosted by a prominent Pharisee, a holy one, a separated one, and, and his guests. We don't know how many other guests were in the room that night, but, but how could she just have the boldness to walk into the middle of a setting like that and do what she did? Well, we're going to see it here in a moment, but before we get to that, there are some memorable disclosures. Go to the next verse where the Pharisees' disdainful judgment is shared with us. He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. To Simon, even physically touching a sinner or being touched by a sinner was a ceremonially and spiritually defiling act. And it would require all kinds of ceremonial rituals to be cleaned cleansed from that defilement. And you see this mentality reflected uh, further on in Luke's gospel in chapter 18, the famous story that Jesus told where a Pharisee and a tax collector went up to the temple to pray. And in reading through that story, I was struck again. You come to verse 11, and here's what Jesus says. The Pharisee, standing by himself. Temples are big public gathering places. Like, you're rarely in a temple alone. No, he, he actually has to stand away from everybody else because touching them might defile him. So standing by himself, then he prays this prayer, which is so revealing as to what's in his heart. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He's laying out his prayer, making his case, saying, I've checked the right boxes. That's the mentality of a Pharisee. And here he is concluding that for this to go on as it has demonstrates that Jesus is not a prophet because prophets know. They just know. They know who is who and what is what. And if Jesus knew who this woman was, he, he certainly wouldn't let her touch him in this way. I think it's interesting that the Pharisee doesn't have alternative options available in his mind right now. I mean, there's, there's not even a capacity to give the benefit of the doubt. He's just already rendered a, a disdainful judgment. Jesus must not be a prophet. Clearly, he's not holy. And, and here's the cool thing, though, about the story, right? Simon actually hasn't said these words. Mark records he thought to himself. Now, I'm curious how Mark got this information. Did he get it from Peter, uh, who, you know, either was there or heard it from Jesus? I don't know. We'll have to wait till we get to heaven to have all those details filled in. But, I mean, what, what an awful moment for Simon when he realizes, like, my secret thoughts are public. But look at, look at how Jesus, who is the omniscient prophet, captures this Pharisee's attention. He does it with a story. And the story includes two debtors. The first owes 500 denarii. That's a year and a half's wages. So whatever you make in a year, multiply, multiply it by one and a half. 
it's a large sum. The second debtor owes 50 denarii. That's about two months' wages. So neither one is actually a small sum, but one is really big. Uh, but here's the, here's the key thing. When they could not pay. Did you catch that? When neither one could pay. You know, when you're bankrupt, when you don't have resources, it doesn't matter if it's $5 or $5,000, you can't pay. And the point is that both are bankrupt. And you know, both Simon and this woman have been bankrupted by their sin, just like you and I have been bankrupted by our sin. And you know, I was thinking even in reference to the baptism, it is a marvelous thing when God captures the soul of a child, convicts them of their sin. And, and you know, as an adult, I mean, some of us are so jaded, they're like, oh, really? I mean, what, what sin does a five, six, seven, eight-year-old have to repent of? Now, parents of, you know, five to eight-year-olds are like, oh, let me tell you. But no, when you live life, realistically, I mean, praise God, neither one of the children that were baptized this morning, you know, had lived a life as hardcore criminals and, you know, selling drugs and murdering and, and all of that. But, you know, because they, like you and me, were born in sin, they were bankrupt, what Simon can't see at the moment is that his sin of self-righteous moralism, his, his great commitment to his religion, is actually part of what bankrupts him. And it could be similar for some of you. You too are a deeply religious person, trying really hard to live a good life, to live honorably. You pay your taxes. You mow your grass. You mow your neighbor's grass. You work hard. You contribute to society. You care for your family. You, you even come to religious meetings like this. You know, friend, you can do all of that, like Simon was doing so much of that, and still be bankrupt before God. What's hard for some people to really believe is that Whereas this woman was bankrupt because of her unrighteousness, Simon is bankrupt because of his self-righteousness. Well, Jesus goes on in the story to say the lender canceled the debt of both. So now Jesus seeks Simon's opinion with a question. And what is that question? Which of them will love him more? And did you catch this as we read the text? Simon seems to answer this somewhat reluctantly. The one, I suppose, if I got to go along with this, okay. The one for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus says to him straight up, you have judged rightly. Simon, you're tracking with me the way you should. But now, Jesus does two things at once. First of all, he confronts Simon and comforts the woman at the same time. And I want you to see this, a little side-by-side -side comparison. Now, now, notice this. This is a beautiful moment. And those of you who are you know, kind of into the stage and, and, and drama of a moment, this is high drama. Like if you were directing this as a play, you would work really hard with your actors and say, you gotta get this timing right. And, and what does Jesus do as he delivers really important truth? Where's he looking? What's the text say? He's looking at the woman, turning toward the woman. His words are directed towards Simon, but his gaze is to the woman. And we haven't heard her speak a word yet, have we? But oh, how eloquent. Her act of love has been. And, and as you compare these two, he confronts Simon saying, you gave me no water for my feet, 
what would that be about? Well, it was very common when you had guests in your home to wash their feet, especially before a meal like this, because they're walking around in sandals on dusty roads. You would think that if Simon had any kind of, of regard or respect for Jesus as his guest, he would have made sure there was a basin and towel. Oh, Jesus, I'm so glad you're here in my home. Please, but before we even recline at the table, let me wash your feet, or let me have one of my servants wash your feet. No, that's not what Simon did. But the woman, Jesus said, she's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. What an act of humble service. And then he says, you gave me no kiss. That's just a common greeting. That would be akin to, you know, like if you are a guest in somebody's home and they give you either a hearty handshake or even a big hug. Oh, we're glad you're here. Come on in. In contrast, he says, from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. And then thirdly, as you can see it, Verse 46, you did not anoint my head with oil. That, again, would have been a sign of honor and respect for a guest that you had great affection for. And what did she do? Anointed his head, not just with oil, but with perfume that probably cost her quite a bit. Well, Jesus continues, look at verse 47, because now he makes a powerful declaration. And this woman who, remember, through Mark, and through Simon's testimony and through what Jesus is about to say, is a sinner. I mean, it has a reputation for it and whatever was involved there. Like this is known publicly throughout the city. But Jesus says to her first, your sins are forgiven. Though they are many, they are released. And then Jesus says, for she loved much. Now, it's important that we get this straight. Jesus is not saying that her love for him is the cause of her forgiveness, but rather it's her response to his extravagant forgiveness. And then he reinforces this, he who is forgiven little loves little. And I, I wonder if Simon felt the sting of that because in all honesty, there hasn't been one demonstration to Jesus since he's entered the house that Simon actually loves him because he didn't wash his feet, didn't greet him with a kiss, didn't anoint his head. And, and yes, I'm sure it was an expensive meal, but maybe not as costly for this Pharisee uh, as a generous heart of love might demonstrate. And then he says in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. Turns directly to her and speaks to her. Your sins are forgiven you. And notice, if you will, too, that, that Jesus said, your faith has saved you. It's not her love for Jesus that saves her. It's not her service to Jesus that saves her. It's not even the sacrifice of this precious perfume that saves her. Her faith in him, her faith in his power to forgive her sins and to change her from the inside out, that faith is the catalyst for her salvation. And then he says, go in peace. Now think about this for just a moment. Peace is that inner tranquility, that state of tranquility that we so rarely enjoy in this day and age. And it's the result of knowing that life is as it should be. And when you begin to tie all this together, those words, go in peace, become even more powerful. She walked in, and by the estimation of the Pharisee and all of his guests, was known as sinner. But now, because of this powerful declaration of our Lord, she is able to exit this room 
and leave the disdain of the host and the opinions of his guests behind. The disdain of that Pharisee and the opinion of the host, though even based in her past acts, do not actually create a true narrative for her at that moment. That's what was. She was a sinner. Now she is forgiven, which means that the the sin itself has been removed. The guilt has been taken away. The debt of her sins has been paid by this Savior. No, he has not died on the cross, but he will. So she's looking forward to the cross in one sense, just like all of us who are sinners look back to the cross and say, Jesus, I need you. Well, Jesus showed up and he had, in fact, rewritten the narrative over her life. She, at this moment, to go in peace means that she is able, by this powerful declaration, to leave the painful memories of her many sins, knowing that they really have been removed. Matt read Psalm 130 earlier in the service. Psalm 103 is another good one. You can remember that. Ones and threes and zeros. Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, should keep a record of our sins and iniquities, Lord, who could stand before that? And the answer is nobody could. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. That's Psalm 130. Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You say, I can't forget some of the things I've done. That, we all get that. In time, God will, like, cleanse those memory banks even, but you just need to walk in the, in, 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 the, in, in the assurance that he has, in fact, removed your sins from you, and he doesn't identify you any longer as a sinner. It's the old you, which, again, that's part of the powerful symbolism of baptism. The old you goes down into the grave like a, 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 a child goes under the water, Old you goes into the grave, and the new you comes out with the resurrected Christ. You say, but I, I don't feel this always. That's okay. That's why, aren't you glad God didn't call you to live the Christian life by your feelings? He called you to live by faith. So the real issue is, do you believe he means it when he says your sins are forgiven? Do you believe him when he says, go in peace? Go in peace. Because his forgiveness and his peace are facts over your life, regardless of how you feel. So leave the disdain. Leave the false narratives that some would continue to try to publish about you. Leave the painful memories of your many sins and go forward in faith and go forward in his peace. Only Jesus has the power to forgive sins. Shame is real. And there's actually only one true remedy for this kind of shame. And some of you have lived with it way too long. And you've tried other tactics. You've tried to escape in, in all kinds of ways, and you just can't get away from it, can you? Well, that's because God's not asking you to save yourself from shame and escape it on your own. Some of you have tried to rewrite your own narrative. I know I messed up, but I didn't really mean it. You know, be honest before God. What you may, be, what you may mean by that is, I had no clue what kind of consequences I would put in motion by my sin. And looking back, it seems like such an outrageously foolish or stupid thing to do. Yeah, sin is crazy and stupid. And it makes us crazy and stupid. But don't rewrite it. Own it. But let that shame bring you back to God, knowing that he has the power to forgive your sin and to pronounce peace over you. 
And so this crowd at the table begins to ask a really important question. Who is this who even forgives sins? He's more than a prophet who knows. He's your creator and savior who knows your secret thoughts like he did Simon's. And he knows the sin beneath the shame specifically. Who is this who even forgives sins? It's the one who has the authority to forgive the sin that you feel so shameful about. And he's the one who has the authority to declare a real eternal peace after he forgives it. You can't do that for yourself. Your parents can't do it. No other religious authority can do it. Only he. But when he does, the sin with all its disgrace, all its fear, all its dishonor, and all of its shame is gone. Would you bow your heads with me, please, this morning? As we pray to the Lord, would you call upon him? And as you do, will you say, Oh, Lord God, let me hear you speak over my life today. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Will you confess the sin that lies beneath your shame? And will you by faith receive his full forgiveness? And then will you determine by God's grace to go in peace? Father, there are huge loads of shame that some bear on their souls today. And they're even surrounded at this moment by other people who would remind them, as this woman was reminded by others, you're a sinner. But Lord Jesus, would you sweetly and sovereignly give that one who's so loaded down by shame the grace to believe that you stand before them today ready to forgive and ready to declare peace. I pray for those who, like Simon, actually feel pretty good about their status in the community and the direction of life even the religious commitments they've made, but Father, for that one who might be here today who actually is bankrupt because of that self-righteousness, would you show them that same mercy and in showing them their bankruptcy, compel them to come to you for the forgiveness of sins and the declaration of peace. Holy Spirit, would you please do all your holy will Come, come, we pray. Father, would you seal now to our hearts by your Spirit all your holy word. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.